Amen. Amen. You guys may be seated. So again, my name is Walter. I want to thank you guys for joining us in worship today. Uh, we are continuing our vision series on who we are, where we're going as a church here at Holmes Avenue. Uh, this is an important series because as we start to think about these things, these are really for you some targets on the wall to start thinking through, how do I know I'm living as a faithful follower of Christ here at Holmes Avenue? One of the things I want you to hear is that we're not talking about some specifics what you're doing. Um, the, the, the issue isn't what we're doing. We're trying to get to the deeper issue of why are we doing these things? Why do we make the decisions we do? Why do we live in the way we do? Why do we act the way we do? We're trying to get to the root heart questions here as we're thinking through this vision series. And today we're going to be looking at this core value, this idea that we equip. Now, obviously, you've been here and you've heard that we put a priority on biblical teaching. We preach straight from the Word of God. We go verse by verse, the, that we told this in a high priority. You've also probably been around and you've been to Sunday school. You've been to some of the classes we've done. You've been to Sunday evening services where we do some discipleship stuff. You've been to our prayer meetings where, yes, we pray, but we're doing some further discipleship and, and study. We truly prioritize equipping you for the task of ministry. That that's one of our goals here is to see you grow and thrive in your faith and to learn and study so that you may be equipped to do the work of ministry. Now, you hear all that and you go, well, that's really great, Walter. And, and this idea of being equipped is, is really helpful for me. But why? Why should we be equipped for this task? Why should we put such a priority on the things we learn, on the things we study? Why is it such an emphasis for you and Pastor Brian that we learn and study the Word of God? Well, quite simply, the reason we put such a priority on this is that ultimately God has reconciled you and I to himself. And he has done so so that we may proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to those who are far from him, but near to us. You see, we put such an emphasis on being equipped because God has given us a purpose, a mission, if you will, to see every man, woman, and child within our circle of accountability, have multiple opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the gospel of Jesus. You see, we have this mission, this purpose of existing. This is why God has called us into his family. Yes, to save us. Yes, to bring redemption to our souls. But so that others may see, hear, and respond to the good news that he's brought to us. That as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 today, we're going to see the emphasis on the plan through this story has always been that God would save us so that we could proclaim the good news to those that are far from him. Uh, if you would, we always do this uh, at Holmes Avenue, would you stand for the reading of God's word? We're going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. The word of the Lord says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 
For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you would, would you pray with me? Father, as we have heard these verses, there is something significant about this ministry of reconciliation. That for those of us who have been brought into the kingdom of God, we have been called to be ambassadors for Christ. And so, Father, today I pray that this this study of this passage would be encouraging for us. That, yes, we would begin to understand and see what this ministry of reconciliation looks like in our everyday life. But furthermore, I pray that it will lead us to worship, to celebrate the goodness of God, that you have displayed your kindness to us, that we, as people who have been redeemed, are now a part of this family. We've received the full riches of your grace and mercy, and we are now a part of this kingdom. Father, we are thankful for you. We're grateful for the grace that you've shown us. And I pray today as we study this passage that it will be encouraging and edifying for us, that we will draw closer to you because of what you're doing through these verses. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You guys may be seated. So as we begin this passage, we see here, right here in verse 16, we'll lead off with our first point. We equip so the new may come. Look at verse 16 with me. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. So we'll just stop right there and kind of land on this verse for a few minutes. You see, Paul leads off with this crucial verse for us here. Uh, We're right in the middle of chapter 5 in the the second letter of his letter to the Corinthian church. And he's addressing some conflict, some issues within the church. There are division over many things right now in the Corinthian church. I don't know if that sounds like a place we live called the United States. There are division over many things, nationality or ethnic origin being one of them. And as he's talking through this, he's addressing that because of this therefore, this previous passage that he's referencing, we are no longer going to live in this way. Now he's referencing verses 14 and 15. Uh, this, I'll read these for you. You can see it here uh, in your Bible. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, he's trying to combat these ideas of division and conflict within the church by saying that if Christ died for us, he died for all of us. That is, all who are able to receive his forgiveness. And those that trust in him, that receive this forgiveness, are now a part of the kingdom of God. And he says, in the midst of this, that there is no true division to be found here. That yes, there are differences that Brother Ed and I do not look the same. I know it's a shock, right? But that is a difference. That is not a division. There is a key distinctive between there. And ultimately what Paul is trying to point out to everyone, that if he died for us, then we live for his glory in unity together as a body. Now, here in this part of 16a, he's saying we regard no one according to the flesh. Now, he's telling us that we to reject any perspective that gives value to other people for any other reason beyond their spiritual status. Now, what do I mean by that? That we're not to look upon someone and find favor in them or to find displeasure in them because of their status of finances? 
We're not to look upon them and exalt them or to put them down because of their race. We're not to look upon someone and exalt them or put them down because of what they wear, what they do, or where they're from. You perhaps get the picture here. That ultimately, at the end of the day, though certainly these things have meaning in this life and in the next, at the end of the day, the only thing that truly matters in this life and the next is going to be your spiritual status. The only thing that makes a true impact on this life and the next is your spiritual condition. That is, are you lost or are you found? Now, if you remember last week, we talked a little bit, uh, perhaps in depth, about this idea of being lost. Just give you a refresher for these terms. Being lost means that you are not a part of the family of God. You've not been brought into his kingdom that you have not received the forgiveness that Christ has offered you and trusted him with your life. That's what lost means, that you're far from God. But by God's grace, there are the found. That is, those of us who have trusted Christ as our Lord and Savior, who've called out to him, asked for forgiveness of our sins, and received that free gift of grace from him. That those of us who have done that, we are found We are the found. We've been brought into the kingdom of God. And what Paul is trying to lead off with right here is to say that there are many things that could be a division among you. The only dividing line that we see in Scripture is ultimately this division of lost to found. That is the only thing that would separate you from people in that you live differently than the lost. There are things that are differences, yes, but you must live differently than the lost. That is the one single dividing line that Paul lays out. Now he continues in in 16b with some personal remarks just about his life. He says, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. You see, perhaps you remember Paul's story. And if you've been a student of the Bible, you've kind of seen where Paul has come from. Paul in the early church was the chief among the Jews, the persecutor of the early church. If you remember the the first martyr we see described, Stephen, uh, Paul was one of the ones who incited the crowd up to condemn this man. Paul was honored among the Jewish population in that area because he was a chief persecutor of the church. He even took pride in how many Christians he was able to lead to their death. You see, he was receiving much glory for this role. He reveled in it. And he rejected the things of Christ. He would have told you that this this Messiah who has come, that they say has come, he is not a true God. He's not the Messiah. He rejected everything about him. And then on the road to Damascus, in Acts 9, Jesus comes into his life with such a force, he knocks him off his donkey and blinds him. You see, this persecutor of the church has a face-to-face encounter with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Jesus says to him, Who do you think that I am? And Paul, in his infinite wisdom, goes, Well, you must be God. You must be who you say you are. Because only God could knock me off this donkey and strike me blind. You see, Paul encountered Christ truly encountered him, and his life was fundamentally changed. And he's saying here in 16b that once we lived according to the flesh and we regarded Christ according to the flesh, that is, we looked upon him by these worldly standards, 
That Paul and the early church, the, some of these people who were not believers at the time would look upon him and go, well, shouldn't the Messiah be a military leader? Shouldn't he come bring peace to Israel? Shouldn't he bring freedom to Israel? Shouldn't he be wealthy? Shouldn't he be someone in nice clothes? Shouldn't he come in and act in a certain way? And Paul was telling us that these standards, these worldly standards they were looking for, for to measure Christ by fell short. He would even remark to us that we all once lived by these worldly standards. You see, we all, whether you're found or not, were once lost. You see, all of us once viewed Jesus as perhaps just a good teacher or even as a myth. We all once wondered if he cared or if he was even real. Even in my own story, as a young man growing up in and around the church, one of the things that I always thought about this things of Christ was that I will come to him when I'm older. That I'll live my life and find glory in the things that I'm going to find glory in. And then when I've had my experience, I'll then come to Christ because he has something to offer me at the end of my days. Now you can hear the reckless arrogance of youth coming out and display. And one of the things I have found is that ultimately, when we view these, this life, this Christ, by worldly standards, they fall short, they fail us. By God's grace, that as a young man, and when I entered college at CSU, I became a believer. That God was kind enough to show me mercy and to allow me to receive forgiveness. I'm grateful that He brought this gospel message to me over my first 18 years of life so I can live the next 70, 80, 90 years for His glory and honor. That this is the proper perspective. And the reality is that we all, whether you are lost or found, have viewed Christ by this human perspective. We've come to the wrong conclusion. We've come to this conclusion that Jesus is not necessary for our life. Now, by God's grace, those of us that have been found, we recognize that he is an integral part of our faith, and thus we no longer regard him in this way. Now, Paul says this is kind of the, the tension he's addressing right now. He moves on to verse 17, and he's continuing to address this idea of we, we equip so that the new may come. In verse 17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You see, here we get to the implications of this viewpoint that Paul has provided for us. You see, when Jesus moves into someone's life and brings them into the kingdom, that is, they receive salvation, they are made new. This is perhaps the most central tenet of the New Testament, that God is making the old into a new creation. That when I trusted Christ as my Lord and Savior, I was no longer Walter who was dead in his sin. I am Walter who has been redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. There is a dividing line in there. The old is gone, the new has come. There's great power to be found in this statement. There is hope for us in this life because of these words. You see, Paul's making a very bold statement about the work of Christ in someone's life when they come to faith. You see, this person is a new creation. They've experienced radical change. Now, we need to make sure that we understand something here. If we're thinking about this tenet, we must recognize this. A person is made new by the repentance of sin and by trusting in Jesus. That this is the only thing that will make you new. 
I don't want you to sit here and think that I've gone to church so many times, that I've gone to Sunday school, I've done this or I've done that, I'm a good person, I do this, I do that. None of that matters. The dividing line exists where those who have not trusted Jesus and repented of their sin, they are on this side, they are lost. Those that have trusted in Jesus, those that have been made new, they are found and they are on this side. That that dividing line exists because to enter into the kingdom, to cross that line, you must confess your sins and say, God, I am wholly inadequate for this task of holiness you've put before me. Only you can make me righteous. Only you can redeem me. Only you can change my heart. That this isn't a band-aid, but this is surgery that takes place in us. God removes this sinful desire from us. And though we are not perfect, we receive salvation. We've entered into the kingdom of God. Now, as we think about this idea of being perfect in this, you recognize that when we receive salvation, we're not made perfect. We now have the capacity to choose God. We now have the capacity to live in a way that brings honor and glory to Him. We continue to grow and thrive in our faith. This is this process of sanctification. That is, we become more like Jesus each and every day. That it's a gradual upward trajectory to becoming more like Christ. It's not this sharp graph, but it's this rolling curve of gradually becoming more like Jesus each and every day once we trusted Him as our Lord and Savior. Now, Paul is clear that Christ's death and resurrection marks this break with the old and the new. Now, he's addressing some big picture theological conditions there. We've talked a little bit about that. But he's really addressing a personal condition that he's focusing in on to each and every reader of the letter to the Corinthian church. Where has this dividing line been put in your life? Can you look back on the story of your life and say the dividing line exists here? That for me, I can look in my life and go, the dividing line exists right here in 2008 in a dorm room at Charleston Southern. I cross from death into life. That I can look back and go, I know my life has changed since then. That I can see the power of the gospel, that dividing line existing in my life. And what Paul would ask you, what he would ask the Corinthian church is, where does this dividing line occur in your life? Now, you might sit here and think, well, I can, clear, I can tell you clear as day. It was here on this date. I can even tell you the hour, right? Some of you, that, it was that impactful. You can go, I know it was this moment at this day at this time. For others of you, you say, I can't quite remember the exact day or time, but I know it was here. My life has changed. And yet still, there may be some of you who can say, I don't see that dividing line. I don't know where it's at. I would submit to you that perhaps you haven't come to it yet. You haven't crossed that line. You see, it's this verse right here, verse 17, that's at the heart of what we do here at Holmes Avenue. You see, we believe that God has the power to change lives and bring people into His kingdom. We believe that God can change the most wicked of sinners. That we believe there is no sin too great that God cannot forgive. And I know that's a bold statement, right? You would say, there's no sin that God can't forgive? Yes. I know that because I've rested my life in that truth, that there is no sin that God cannot forgive. Yes, you and I may struggle to forgive people for their sins. Remember, there are different consequences for our sin. 
But there is still this one forgiveness that God has provided to each and every person who would cry out to him for forgiveness. You see, it's this reason, this forgiveness that is offered that we equip one another. It's why it's one of our guiding statements. We believe life change comes through the proclaimed word of Jesus. That as we study the scriptures, we believe life change comes through the proclaimed words of Jesus. That when we proclaim the good news of Christ coming to seek and save the lost from the word of God, lives are changed. Yet, as we're echoing Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10 from last week, how can we proclaim this word of God if we don't know it? How can we proclaim this word if we don't know it? You see, this is why we have such an emphasis on Bible teaching in every aspect of our church. This is why we are encouraging discipleship relationships. This is why we're trying to equip you. Yes, we're trying to shape you for kingdom life. But most importantly, we're trying to equip you so that you can give this kingdom away to others. It is this purpose that leads each of us to follow Christ, to do the ministry of reconciliation. It is this purpose, this trying to give away the keys to the kingdom that we live our lives in this ministry of reconciliation. You see, we equip so that the new may come, so that those that are far from God may be brought into the family. And you might say, just as I can go on an aside, forgive me for this, this isn't my notes, but I'm going to just take this plunge. You might say, Walter, that's all well and good, but why should we pursue those that are lost, right? Like we talked about it last week and this idea of the harvest, that it's plentiful, that laborers are few. And you're saying, well, why do we need to pursue these people? Yes, they're lost. Yes, yes, there are lots of them. But what is the point of this? What, why is this so important? The key to this is that the harvest is valuable. These are real people made in the image of God. As we study scripture, as we see every time Jesus talks about the harvest, that is those that are lost, what does he compare it to? He compares it to something valuable. That is, he compares the harvest, those that are lost, to money, coins. He compares them to children. He compares them to sheep. He compares them to wheat, to fish. As we take a step back and put ourselves into the mindset of the average person who's hearing the words of Jesus in this era, all of those things are incredibly valuable. I mean, even today, money's still very valuable. These things would have value to us. The picture that Jesus is putting out here, why do we equip so that the new may come? Is because these people who are far from God have value in the sight of God. And if we're to live in unity with the things that Christ has said, we must pursue these people who have value in God's eyes because they have value in our eyes. That we live and risk all for the name and honor of King Jesus because these people have value. Because they're created in the image of God. And just like us, they are in need of redemption. And by God's grace, He has brought redemption to my life so that I may, as an ambassador of Christ, Pursue them so that they may experience redemption. This is why we do what we do. This is why we pursue the ministry of reconciliation. This is why we are trying to equip every man, woman, and child in this church with the power and capacity of the gospel so that people that are far from God but near to you may see, hear, and respond to the glory of His name. 
You see, we equip so that ministry may be done. That's our second point. Verse 18 reads, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Now, we see this idea, we equip so that ministry may be done. And I want to go ahead and kind of give you a, a definition, if we will. You see ministry and you probably think we equip so ministry can be done. You're thinking either A, that's what the pastors do, or B, that's what our gathered church body does. Like this is ministry, our events are ministry, and, and you're correct. Those are correct interpretations. But I think there's a third angle we have to understand that is, and ministry is what every man, woman, child who's found in Jesus does with their day-to-day -day life. That, yes, I recognize that most of you are not called to preach and stand up here and proclaim the Word of God. And you may be thinking, well, that's great, that's good, because I'm terrible at speaking. But you are called to proclaim the good news of the gospel where you live, work, and play. You live in areas that I don't live. You work somewhere that I don't work. You hang out places that I don't hang out at. If I'm the only hope for your friends and family to hear the gospel, how are they going to hear? They're not. You see, Jesus, the hope of the world that Jesus provided rest on you and I. Paul lays out the gospel in this plan of salvation. You see, the heart of the gospel is that Christ was crucified as Lord. But the plan of the gospel is for it to be personally proclaimed. You see, there is no plan B, C, anything like that. Plan A through Z throughout the story of Scripture has been that man would be redeemed so that we could then proclaim the good news of redemption we've received. We are the only plan for the gospel to go forth. We, not I, not Pastor Brian, we. I need you to hear the weight of this statement today. You and I are the only plan for this gospel to go forth. This means if the world, if our friends and families, our neighborhoods are to be reached, they're to be reached by you and I. They're to be reached by our individual and corporate efforts as believers. The only way the world is going to experience reconciliation with God is through us going forth and proclaiming this gospel peace that we've been provided. You see, we've been given this ministry of reconciliation. We've been called, or you could say appointed, to proclaim the good news of redemption to those that are far from God but near to us. Now, as Paul is writing this, he gives us some big picture ideas about this ministry of reconciliation here. He tells us exactly what we're to do and what this message entails. Kind of summarizing verses 18 and 19, they're saying very similar things here. Here's kind of your core point. God is the driving force behind the redemption of mankind. God is the driving force behind redemption of mankind. You see, Christ reconciled us to himself. That God himself initiates this process and brings this process of reconciliation through Christ. The center of this gospel message, this reconciliation, is God himself. The beauty and truth of the gospel is that when we receive the gospel, we get God. 
that we get to spend eternity with Him, that we get to spend the rest of our lives in relation with Him. You see, this is a free message that Paul brings. This is one that brings hope for this life and the next. Perhaps you're listening and you're feeling the weight upon this and you're saying, well, Walter, if I'm to reach my neighborhood, if I'm to reach my friends and family, am I responsible for them trusting Christ? By no means. The weight of salvation is on God himself and he's the only one who can bear that weight. The weight that rests upon us is to be messengers, to be ambassadors for Christ, to proclaim the good news that Jesus has redeemed us and that you too can be redeemed. That we are representing a heavenly kingdom as we go forth as an ambassador proclaiming the good news of the gospel. You see, our task, my task, is to proclaim. Someone else, that is God, will provide the harvest. You see, in other words, God reconciles. He does this action. We are the ones who are being reconciled to Him. A second idea we see here is that God acted through Christ's death and Christ alone is the means of reconciliation. Now, what does that mean? I know it's kind of some flowery language, but here's what it means. Reconciliation is based upon this idea of imputation. That is, that Jesus took our sins on the cross and then when he died, was buried and raised again, our sins died with him. They were buried with him, but they did not get raised up with him. That because he's fully man and fully God, he lived a perfect life that you and I could not. That he went to the cross, an innocent man, never having once sinned. And he bore the weight of our sin and shame upon that cross so that you and I may have life eternal if we would confess our sins to him and receive this free gift of forgiveness. You see, we can receive this reconciliation because the demands of God's holy law have been fully met upon the cross. God can be reconciled to sinners like you and I because Christ has paid the debt for us. The third point that that Paul gives us here within this message of reconciliation is that God continues to act through those who have been reconciled. God continues to act through those who have been reconciled. You see, Paul captures the true meaning of the ministry word here. Our ministry, our task, if you will, as people of God, has its origin and is made possible by the grace of reconciliation. We do what we do because God has reconciled us to Him. We do what we do because God has reconciled us to Him. You see, it involves more than simply explaining to others what Christ has done. It requires that we become an active reconciler. That is, like Christ, we as ministers of reconciliation jump right into the middle of human turmoil and pain to bring harmony out of chaos, to bring reconciliation out of estrangement, to provide love in the place of hate. You see, this is what you and I are called to do. This is why we desire to see you equipped. You know, one of the things I pray for you, and you might tell me to quit praying for you after I say this, is I pray for you to call me one day and go, Pastor Walter, I'm in over my head here. And you're probably thinking, I'm going to ask him to quit praying for me. But I pray that you would call me and go, I'm in over my head. I just had this conversation with my neighbor, co-worker, you insert whoever, and they asked me something I didn't know about the gospel. And I told them I didn't know. 
And they said, can we talk about it later? And I said, yes. You see, my prayer is you get so involved in the messiness of life around us, of those that are far from God, that you would get in situations where you're over your head and you're thinking, the only thing I can do is go, God, help. You see, my prayer for you is to get so involved in these things that you're continually calling me and Pastor Brian going, what do I do? What am I supposed to say? What, what do I do next? You see, we know many of these people we live life with are lost. I mean, let's call a duck a duck. We live, work, and play with people who are far from God. That there are people around us who are lost as can be. And though they are far from God, they are near to us. And we, Pastor Brian and I, your deacons, your leadership here, want to see you and I in the midst of their lives providing reconciliation. We want to live in the messiness that is life with these people so they may see kingdom life being brought to them. So they may see, hear, and respond to this message of hope and forgiveness from Jesus. Finally, Paul leaves us with a call. This is why we do these things. Here with our third point. We equip because we've been called to as ambassadors. Look at verse 20 with me. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, Paul uses this word, I've said it throughout today, this word that is ambassadors. And you're probably thinking, well, I've heard that word before, right? You know, you're hearing this, you're thinking, well, this is someone who's sent out to make a case for the one who sent them. They're representing someone. Yet, as we get into the context of the way Paul uses this word, that shows us who we're to be as ambassadors of Christ. You see, in Roman culture, an ambassador was not merely just someone who's representing a, a person or individual. That in the Roman Empire, ambassadors to imperial provinces, that is like states in our terminology, the, these places are ran directly by the emperor. These ambassadors are running this province for the emperor. They have a direct line of communication to the emperor of Rome. They have been appointed by the emperor of Rome to run and to manage this area. And when Paul uses this context of ambassador, he's saying that God himself has commissioned the work of the church this way. That just like Rome has commissioned its ambassadors to manage and to oversee this area, God has commissioned you and I to manage and oversee the areas he has placed us. No, this doesn't mean that we are in charge of things or anything like that. What it does mean is that God has specifically placed us in the places we are for a purpose. All of us have jobs or places we live, things we enjoy doing. Do you think that you came upon those things by accident? Please raise your hand if you think that you have the job you have or the place you live or the things you do by accident. For those watching at home, no one's raised their hand yet because here's what we are aware of. We understand that we have been positioned as followers of God. We have been provided these things 
for a purpose. God has placed you where you live, work, and play to be an ambassador for him in those areas. Now, there's a second usage of the word ambassador within the Roman culture and empire. You see, when the Roman Senate decided that a country should become a province, that this group of people was worthy to be brought into the Roman Empire, they would send 10 ambassadors or envoys out. They would arrange the terms of peace, essentially bringing these people in this province into the Roman Empire. They would say, this is what a Roman citizen does. This is what we're expecting. If you want to be a Roman citizen, you abide by these things and you trust in the Roman Empire. And the people would say, yay or nay, and they would enter into the empire. Paul is also using this message of being an ambassador to show that we are people who bring the terms of God to others so that they can become citizens of his kingdom. You see, if God has, has placed us as an ambassador into the places where we live, work, and play, we are also there to dictate to those around us, here are the terms of entering into God's kingdom. That is, here's what you must do to be a citizen of heaven. Repent and believe. Be reconciled to God. That this is the gospel message we've been sent out to bring to those around us. You see, we're foreigners in a strange land serving a faraway kingdom. And while we're here, we speak for our own kingdom. As if that's not enough, perhaps weighed upon us, the honor of our kingdom is in our hands. The world looks at us as we proclaim to the world, we are followers of Christ. We are going to live in such a way to bring honor and glory to our King Jesus' name. And they look to us to see how we act to see how we respond, to see if indeed this is a kingdom that is worthy of joining. And this is why Paul gives us verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, the point of what Paul is telling us here, the point of why we equip you and strive to see you grow and thrive in the Lord is because of verse 21. That gospel message that Jesus himself, he knew no sin, but he was created, he went to this earth to bear the weight of our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That is that God's holy kindness and mercy would rest upon us as repentant believers in Christ Jesus. That this is the root of the gospel message. This is where reconciliation is taking us to. That in order to be reconciled, to be made right with God, there must have been a payment for our sin. And that payment for our sin was Jesus. That payment for our sin was Jesus coming to live the life that you and I could not. Because you and I are sinners. We have fallen short of the glory of God. That not a one of us is perfect here. And because of our imperfections, because of our sins, we needed forgiveness. And some of us have freely called out for forgiveness and said, I need someone greater than myself to make a way. And his name is Jesus. Others, you've never called out for this forgiveness. That perhaps it's the first time you've heard this. Maybe it's the hundredth time you've heard this. But what I do know is that each and every one of us 
needs forgiveness for our sins. The simple truth is that our sin has separated us from God. And that if we do not repent of our sin, that separation will persist not just in this life, but into the next. We'll spend eternity separated from God in hell. And what that means is that we spend eternity being separated from God in a place of torment and damnation. And I don't say this for you to go, this is my get out of hell free card. But I want you to hear that the true torment of hell is not the fire and the brimstone or any of those things, but is knowing that there is a way, a path to peace and forgiveness. And that for the rest of eternity, you will say that he who knew no sin was made so that I might be the righteousness of God. And I could have had that. That you'll spend eternity knowing that forgiveness was this close. And you rejected it. And so I ask you, as you've heard this message of the gospel and of reconciliation, I ask you this question. Where is that dividing line in your life? Does it exist Can you look back on your life and go, it is at this moment that I've received forgiveness of my sin and I was reconciled to God. Does it not exist? Are you not sure? Can you not pin that point down? What I would submit to you is that life is too short and eternity is too long to waste time with, I think you did, maybe I did, I'm not sure. That if you're sitting here and you're thinking, I don't know if I've received this reconciliation or I'm not sure I could put it on a timeline, then speak to me. Our band's going to come back up here and lead us in a time of worship. And this is a time of us to pray, to seek reconciliation with God and to be forgiven. You see, this will be a time of quiet reflection and prayer for us to gather our thoughts and to hear what God is saying to us. That what I'm praying that God would say to you is that just the same words that he gave to Paul, be reconciled to God through him who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is the gospel message. There is hope and peace to be had in this life and the next, but it begins and ends with reconciliation with your creator, God himself. And so here in the next few moments, I'm going to pray for us. That I'll pray for a few moments and I'll give us a time of quiet prayer and reflection. This will be an opportunity for you to hear what God is saying to you. This will be an opportunity for you to listen and to cry out to God Himself, crying for redemption, asking for forgiveness of your sins. Maybe you're here and you're a believer and there's some specific sins you need to repent of. Maybe there's some things you need to confess to the Lord tonight, today. This is your time to do it. After a few moments of silent prayer, I'll close us. And we'll together sing the song of the gospel message that Jesus has come to redeem his people. So if you would, would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, we are thankful for you today. As we've heard this gospel message of reconciliation, Father, we are grateful that you would see a people in need and that you would send your son to redeem them. We're thankful that 
when we sinned, when that first sin entered the world, that you didn't wash your hands of us, that you didn't turn away, but that you committed to make a way for forgiveness for all people. And so, Father, we are here as a people gathered together to ask for forgiveness. For those of us that have trusted you, we have the dividing line where we have crossed from death to life. May we confess our sins and our sorrows to you. May we repent of the things that we've done. For those that are here that do not have that dividing line, who would say, I'm not sure, or I know that I've not been redeemed. I pray that today would be the day they would confess their sins to you. Perhaps for the first time and trust in you as their Lord and Savior. That they would be reconciled with God through the shed blood of Jesus. So Father, we ask here in the next few moments, would you speak to us individually? In this silence, would you say much to us and let us see what it is you're calling us to do? Father, as we move into this time of worship, we pray that you've spoken to us. We pray that we've listened well to the words you would have to say to us. Father, we pray that we are receptive to the power of the Spirit in this time. May you move in our hearts and change us where change is needed. May you bring rejoicing and hope where hope and rejoicing are needed. As we sing these words of this last song, May we celebrate the goodness of God in our lives. May we rejoice that salvation has come and that this life we have hope because of you, Jesus. We're grateful for you, Father. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.